How are you feeling today? You feeling all right? Are you feeling shocked? Today I find myself feeling shocked. Not really once shocked, but twice shocked by a couple of things that have come out today. One of them, the big shock. This is it, right here. I have it in my hands. It's a piece of paper. It is the decision by the Ontario Court of Appeals, and it has dismissed the legal challenge from elementary teachers and the Canadian Civil Liberties Association to take a look at the sex ed curriculum. The challenge has been dismissed. Really? It's a divisional court of appeal. And they released that government lawyers said teachers were allowed to go beyond what is in the new curriculum. No evidence of a teacher being disciplined for doing that. <sighs> okay, yeah, but this is this is gray area where gray area doesn't have to be. Isn't it? I mean, we described it when this first came out, that they were going to roll things back as being trying to do your work right now with Windows 98. Go ahead. Fire up Windows 98. See what you can do. Because it was turning back the clock at that point to 1998 with the sex ed curriculum. So I'm, I'm shocked that that divisional court looked at it that way. And I almost feel that they're looking at the wrong thing. It's like you're holding out a pen and you're saying, hey, does this pen work? And somebody says, yes, it has a black lid. That's not what I asked. Can you see if this pen works? Can you scribble that and see if you get some ink out of it? Yes, that lid is black. What? I don't get it. I I have no idea why they're answering the question in this way. There is no evidence of a teacher being disciplined for doing that. I'd like to see them kind of protect teachers, but I guess in, in the interest of all of this, they don't want to turn this back into a big discussion again, do they? And the government wants to do what the government has done. But I'm shocked by that. Are you shocked by that? I'm shocked by that. The other thing I'm shocked by, and we're going to get into this in kind of a bigger way in just a little while, and that happens to be the fact that according to a new RBC poll, Canadian parents are still subsidizing their 30 to 35-year-olds' lives to the tune of 48% of them. 48%. Now, it could be things like paying their cell phone bill. It could be giving them a little bit of money for rent. It's pretty wild to think that it's that high. 48%. Because when you look at the statistics, initially, it's a group of individuals who are between the ages of 18 and 35. And I find that very misleading because typically from the age of 18 to 20 or 18 to 22 or maybe even 18 to 23, you're talking about that person being a student. You're in college, you're in university. So yeah, if they're drifting some money at them, I don't know if we're doing it right, but we have an amount of money that we ask our children to come up with each and every year for post-secondary education. And then the rest of it, we've just got to find we got to find that money. And that's what we do. So it's kind of coming out of the same pot. I can't say, well, you make sure you pay your car insurance or you make sure you pay your cell phone bill. No, they're asked to come up with an amount of money and 
then we kind of fill in some gaps and rock and roll. Hopefully we make it through. But when it comes to 30 and 35-year-olds, really? And you're, you're dribbling money at them on a regular basis? I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, happy birthday. Here's, you know, money to, to do something. We have extra money. We'd like to give it to you. There are a lot of fortunate people who are in that position right now. I don't know whether they thank real estate and the fact that they bought their house for $10,000 and then they sold it again for five hundred. I don't know if that's what it is. But there have been some fortunate opportunities for people entering the baby boomer age. So if they want to share the wealth, that's one thing. But to have to do it, because here are some of the things. And again, in a half hour from now, we'll spell this out even more. But I currently help my children pay in part or in full for certain things since they've turned 18. Nationally, 76% do that. My children are trying to become financially independent. 85% say, yeah, that's right. Uh, My children are struggling to become financially independent. And we're talking about people between the ages of 18 and 35. Over half said yes, 53%. I feel it's very difficult for young adults starting out today to make ends meet. I'd agree with that. Buying a house? 86% say yes. Yeah, I'm I'm in there. Uh, I'm concerned that supporting my adult children will impact my retirement savings. 36% say yes to that. So it's a pretty interesting stage. And here's the way that we're going to take this because thanks to some very good work by a reporter friend of ours at Global News Online, we're going to be able to kind of look at this in another perspective as well because we've got parents of children between the ages of 18 and 35 also supporting their parents which makes things a little complex. So we'll look into that. 519-643-2222. Alex, you had a thought on this. Hello? Hey, Alex. Um, I just want to bring my little feedback to the subject discussed about the sex curriculum. And it's not the first uh, time I hear you talking about this matter. And uh, the point is, uh, when speaking about the sex curriculum, we just need to realize that it's pretty much politicized. It's not like a presentation of scientific, well-proven, evidence-based facts against the, some uh, backward people who want to block that. If you have a, like a family doctor or a psychiatrist yourself, you can always have a chat with them. It's not just somebody out there, just your local professional, and ask them about some subject in that curriculum, for example, how many genders they believe there are or other things. And you will be quite uh, you know, uh, realistic about your expectation that uh, most of those uh, uh, health specialists, professionals, uh, they would not support the subjects uh, presented as the firm, evidence-based, scientific facts. It's just the other way around. That's why if there is somebody who is uh, resisting the changes done by the foreign government, there will always be somebody, and when we uh, talk about the resistance to something, we should not uh, say this federation or the um, elementary school teachers are against it. We can say just some elementary school teachers or a certain proportion, if you have some some data about it, they are against. But the absolute majority, they are probably pro. They are probably for these changes. And that's the problem with reporting news in general when we say that Canadians are against something. We should always say that some Canadians or specify the proportion of Canadians who are against it, the proportion of Canadians who are for that. Otherwise, it sounds very very like a blanket statement saying that everybody is against it and it's 
like a black and white. That shouldn't be like that. Okay, well, point well taken. But Alex, realize that when you were making your point, you said that probably all teachers or probably a great majority of teachers are in favor of the curriculum. We don't know that. Yeah, that's what we, you need to, uh, to speak clearly, that there is a certain amount of teachers who are against this curriculum and their concerns are being heard and being replied in a reasonable manner and nobody will ever be happy with every single decision the court is making. We can question it, we can challenge it in a certain way, but we should keep our emotions and our anger and just try to, be, just try to present the whole picture to the listeners not just like a black and white statement. Okay, well, I'm not, I'm not trying to make a black and white statement. I apologize if that's how it came across to you. Here is what my concern is with all of this, and I guess it does go back to the changes made to the sex ed curriculum. The physician doesn't live in the world that those students and those teachers do. Uh, the professional that is going to, you know, the whoever you want people to go to, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, they don't live in the world that those teachers and and the students do and i think we do, we do. Is, i is mean it... the, the teachers are the same parents as you and me and they have their own children and they walk the Some same streets and breathe the same air so they are pretty much aware of the problems of let's say uh consent and sexting and the other things which uh there is nothing wrong about it but when you put the existence of the multiple genders as the firm scientific fact that's what i would encourage you to speak with your professional about and again that's pretty much politicized presentation and uh, there should be a clear uh clear distance between the political or opinion views and the hard science yeah hey that's that makes perfect sense right there do you not believe there should be discussion in school involving students about these issues that they deal with outside the classroom you don't believe that that should happen well mike it's uh somehow uh, um, uh corresponds to the second part of your uh program today like the People are living at the expense of their parents up to their 30s and 40s in the mom's and dad's basement. And it's not because they don't have enough information about sex and the stuff like that. They don't have information about the finances, about the world they live in. They have been really confused about their professional choices and so on and so forth. That's where we should put the focus on. People will be fine to get their sexual education in our world. There is no lack of information there. And I don't personally believe that school should be focused on that because if we listen to the news lately, it sounds like this is the most hot, most important, most pressing matter affecting the most of the young Canadians. And I would say it's not. What is important for the young Canadians just to have a solid job, good perspective in their world, to be independent, to make their own families, and so on and so forth. And the school should be helping just the edu- um, uh, economical literacy, the basic knowledge, which unfortunately lots of young people do not have. And we kind of switch the focus to some things which, should, which might be to a certain extent important, but we are missing so many other important matters. That's why, I mean, uh, like most of the parents, that's why the Ford government has been elected, because they were not happy with the sex curriculum changes which the Wins government was introducing, because they say, well, leave, leave us to us. Leave us to our uh, parents, uh, our children relationship, and we will choose the right age, we will write, uh, choose the right forms, we will do it on our values, belief, and so on. Don't be so, let's say, uh, uh, one-size-fits-all type of approach. I mean, this is a very, de- very delicate matter. It's not a matter to be, like, uh, like uh, bluntly discussed in a, a, in an audience like that, because uh, lots of sex curriculum things offered, they were really inappropriate. And again, people uh, give their votes. There is a mandate for the Ford government, so let them do their job. 
If they are doing the wrong job, next election they will be corrected in the proper way. But in general, we should give elected officials a mandate of trust. Because, again, it's, uh, it, it's a democracy system, right? So if they are in power, so let them do the job, and then we will assess the actions, and ideally we will have some facts and figures and something measurable, not just emotions, not just one people is not happy or one group of people is not happy and trying to make it like a hot, big news. So we just have to be more balanced and more open and more kind of inclusive in this matter, not just trying to, you know, try to slap on the hands of the people who just got into the power and trying to make some changes. And let's, let's wait a little bit, let's see the results, and then we will be able, at least a year, a couple of years maybe, we'll be able to see if there is any, let's say, increase in the sex violence or the sex crimes or anything related to that. And then we will say, hey, probably we need to adjust the curriculum in the school and focus in the areas of concern. Alex, we could do an entire two-hour talk show about some of the things you've just raised. I'm really happy you called today. Thank you so much for doing that. Thank you, Mike. I really love your show. Good luck with everything. Hey, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Alex brings up some excellent points, and he really does. And I, what I was saying was I was shocked. I was shocked by the fact that the appeal in this was dismissed. And I can understand why it was, but I, I just didn't see that it would just be, oh, no, we're not going not gonna to focus in on what the teachers have raised. I thought it would go further. Maybe that's the thing. I thought it would go further than it actually did. But Alex raises some good points. Hey. We did have a lot of people upset about the way that the liberals had handled the sex ed curriculum. That was one of the reasons that the conservatives got votes. That's one of the reasons they're in power now. And you know what? You know what I like best about what Alex said? And, you know, I, I don't necessarily agree with the fact that you shouldn't talk about this in school. I have no problem with whatever communication. I put the faith in the teacher to stand at the front of the room and mediate and moderate. I do that. Now, again... Maybe that's maybe that's not right, and that's not a good idea. But that's that's kind of I don't mind that as long as the kids are in a setting where they can talk about it. Otherwise, there's a lot of mis- misinformation. So that's where I'm coming from. But I like what Alex said because we don't do this enough. We have a governing power; it is in place. It's in place for a period of time. Let's wait and see. And I love what he said there because nobody's really being hurt by anything right now that we can you know put in tangibly they yes they can still get information as as alex says from a doctor from another professional parents can handle it so let's wait and see how this works and i love that attitude and i think that's an attitude we don't have enough because we don't allow ourselves enough patience anymore it's all well this needs to be done now so yeah let's wait and see i'm on board with that let's take a break up next new headquarters for ltc what do you think we need that Well, some people think we do. We'll get the story for you. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. The city deals with a lot of questions on a pretty regular basis. What do we do with the train tracks downtown is one of the ones that probably will go very, very far into the future. And I don't think we'll get any kind of solution. But deals with a lot of different issues. One of the issues that's come up recently with the LTC is an LTC headquarters, and here's the big question in all of it. Do we need a new one? Joining us right now, Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire. Councillor Squire, how is Thursday going for you? It's not going bad. I just uh, I did a little work this morning, and now I'm talking to you. What can be better? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you think of it that way. Well, you're more work. I didn't say you were not work, <laughs> but you, I'm here with you. <laughs> well, let's take a look at this particular issue. 
Yep. Is this a, a thing that's come out of nowhere? I'm guessing it isn't, that it's kind of been yep. in the works for a little while. Why are we hearing the question now, does the LTC need a new headquarters? Yeah, so first of all, this has been going on since before, long before I was a counselor back in 2006, 2007. They put aside money for a new headquarters, and they put aside $14 million, London Transit, to build a new facility. For some reason, I have no idea why. Uh, I can't speak to that because I'm, I'm relatively new on council in terms of, of transit. But at, uh, we are now hearing again the issue of them needing a new headquarters. And I think it's really important if you've ever been out there, first of all, this wasn't even built as a transit facility. So it was originally an industrial plant. Um, and so it became the London Transit headquarters. And over many, 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 many years, I would imagine, it's been re- readjusted. It's been fixed up. They've done all this stuff to try to keep it functioning. And now it's unfortunately getting to the point where it is no longer a usable or feasible uh, transit facility, particularly given the fact that if we expand transit, which we want to do in some way to have a better system, we just can't fit enough buses in there, even with the other facility we have. So I'm, I'm satisfied that we need something new for London Transit. The big issue is where do we find the money? And that, that is, as it always is at City Hall, that will be the challenge. Because now we're probably looking if, if it was going to be a certain amount years ago. Uh, let's face it, it's not going to be that amount. It's going to be even more. Oh, it's a huge number. Look, I don't think any of us have any illusions that this is not a one-year write-a-check sort of situation when you're talking about this kind of money. So the challenge going forward will be, where do we find the money to, to rebuild? Now, they're rebuilding on site, which is a great thing. They're doing it in phases, which is a great thing, which means you can do it over time. So we have time. It doesn't, it's not something that's going to happen tomorrow. Nobody's going to be writing a check for that amount of money. But I think it's really healthy to start looking at it because if you go out to uh, London Transit um, and go through the building, I think you'd be surprised. I think you'd be thinking you're in a building That's in the 1950s, quite frankly. All of the infrastructure there is really, really severely uh, dated. It doesn't have the the facilities that a modern transit system would have. And frankly, I think London can do a lot better. So the issue will be over the next few years, can we put aside as a city council, are we committed to putting aside enough money to build a new transit facility that will service what we plan to do in the future? But I, I don't think there's a reasonable argument to just say, the building as is is fine because it, it just isn't. And I know that from being out there. Ward 6 Councillor Phil Squire with us as we talk about a potential new headquarters for London Transit. Councillor Squire, people would wonder, well, where? Would you put it on the existing site? Would you have to find a new location as well as the money to facilitate it? Yeah, so that's the interesting thing. They looked at other locations. So they looked at other places to build a facility in other areas of London. And the conclusion they came up with, although it would be, and it it would be more expensive, quite frankly, to to build it elsewhere, but not hugely more expensive, but it would be more expensive. But the real issue is, in terms of operating costs, the farther a facility is away from bus routes, the more time buses are driving around without any passengers, which means you're not making any money. So from an operating point of view and from a cost point of view, the present location is the best location. The other thing is, during the time, obviously, there's this construction, they'll be, con- be able to continue to work there. They have a plan that they can continue to, to work there. 
the one thing I really liked about it is that it's phased. So although the whole project is a lot of money, 160 some odd million dollars, which to me is huge, we can do it in phases. So all of these things are the same. We, we come up with an idea, we have a project, we agree we need to do the project, but then the issue will be how long is it going to take to, to accumulate that money uh, from, from the capital that we generate as a city through taxes and development fees to build it. So it, it's, it's actually exciting in a way that we're, uh, we're moving into the future with London Transit because I think it's something we need to do. Just got an email from Al saying, would Wonderland near Warncliffe work? Yeah, that was. I think they looked at sites in northeast London and northwest London. I think, and as I say, they're more expensive than building on site because of the the period of time you'd have buses driving there where they don't have any passengers. And um, the other thing is that the present site can meet, in terms of its size and its acreage, can meet all of the transit needs into the foreseeable future. So it's not like we would be cramming a new building into a uh, you know a site that's not big enough. The, the site is big enough to, to meet all the transit needs. And as I said, um, the location is not bad. You're not gonna, it's hard to get a, a, that large a location with that acreage that isn't outside of London or on the fringes of London. So they did a pretty thorough analysis, and we were presented with that last night. And frankly, it's hard to, it's hard to say they don't need a new headquarters. And I, I, I would challenge anyone to go out there and do a tour and say we can keep going as we are. Councillor Squire, thanks for the update on this. It was great to be with you. Go Knights. <laughs> Go Knights. The Knights are in Kitchener tomorrow night. That is Councillor Phil Squire to, and uh, and talking about LTC headquarters and building a new one and what it would cost, where it would go, all those sorts of things. Can the city find the money? And as he says, take a walk through it. And if we're going to be focusing more on transit, and we are going forward, then, yeah, you want to make sure that the place where you're housing everything can do what it needs to do. Let's face it. How far away are electric buses? Can we handle that? Can you can you rejig what's out there now? We'll take a break for news with Jacqueline LaBelle. More to come on the show. We'll talk about the sandwich generation not having that much bread left. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. I think Florida is getting something right. You might not, you might not like this, but I think they're getting something right. Here's the thing. You know how everybody makes fun of Florida man? Florida man tries to throw a brick through a window, knocks self-unconscious. You know, that kind of thing. You know Florida man. He's always doing things that are very, very wrong. A lot of people doing a lot of things wrong in Florida, apparently. But here's the, the story on this. There is a new bill in the state of Florida that would make it illegal for you to pet your dog while driving. I think they should go further than this. They should make it illegal for you to be the only person in the car with a dog while driving. Dogs are the biggest distraction, not necessarily outside of cell phones, I suppose. You People eat soup while they drive. But dogs, let's just say, are a major distraction. While driving, I never understand it. I I think we need a shaming website locally for people who leave their dogs in the car while they go into the grocery store. I'd like those people to be shamed on a regular basis. Uh, don't bring your pet if you're going to the grocery store. They don't get it. Yeah, well, the, but they love riding in the car. Yeah, but they don't like waiting in the parking lot. Well, I'm only going to be 20 minutes. They don't know that. So don't bring your dog. You want to take your dog for a ride? That's fine. 
Have somebody else in the car. Because what about if the dog wants to help drive? Which some of them do. Dogs also don't understand a couple of things. You know what those things are? The brake and the gas pedal. And the small ones can sometimes get down under your feet. You want to try and put the brake on with the dog underneath the brake pedal? Not good. And I know there are doggy seat belts and stuff. But no, I like this. This is very, very good. Keep the pets out of the vehicle. I don't see the advantage to it. They love it. You know what else dogs love? Everything that makes you go, do you want to do this? That's what they love. Do you want to go pick rocks in a quarry for three hours? If you say it like that, they'll get excited. They're dogs. Drive less with your dog, please. So a Florida Senate, uh, or the Florida Senate, has introduced the bill that would ban interaction with pets while people are behind the wheel. In a survey that was done by AAA, so the equivalent of our CAA, 52% of people surveyed that they have pet their dog while driving. 29% admitted they were distracted by their animal. So if 29% are admitting to it, do you know how high that is? Do you know when you're trying to admit to something in a survey what the numbers typically do? They're a little on the low side. Well, I don't really do that. That'll be a two out of five. Just a two. Don't do it a lot. No, it says, have you ever done it? Yeah, just two out of five. Well, this is what Florida's after. Go, Florida! How many times do you ever hear that? Certainly not at Panthers games. There aren't enough people there to say it. Let's come back in a moment, and we will talk about the sandwich generation having trouble hanging on to their own bread. Who's after it? Their parents and their children. And some of those children are of the age to be parents themselves. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. So earlier today, RBC released some information. They released their 2019 RBC Family Finances Poll. And it looked at a few things, and we're going to look at a couple of those things, and then we're going to take this to a whole different level, thanks to Laura Hensley, who is an online journalist with globalnews.ca. The one thing that it looked at was whether or not parents with what you would consider to be adult children, so you turn 18, welcome to adulthood, whether parents of children between the ages of 18 and 35 are able to live their life without the hand coming out. Hey, uh, can I have 20 bucks? Or can you pay my cell phone bill? Or maybe those parents are just doing that because that's exactly what this poll seems to indicate. We'll start there and then we'll take a look at where those parents of the 18 to 35 sit when they kind of look over to the other side and see their own parents saying, Hey, you got 20 bucks? Can you pay my cell phone bill? Can you help me out because I really have no more money and you're all I have left? You are my only hope? These are realistic things. These are legitimate things. And these are things that we get to talk with Laura Hensley about right now. Laura is, again, a national online journalist with Global News. Laura, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you? Not too bad. You are surrounded by data dealing with children supporting parents, with parents supporting children. It sounds like a very (laughs) happy place to be with all this support going on. 
I mean, it depends what side you're on. If you're the person getting the money, maybe you're in a happier position than the one who has to give it. I don't know. (laughs) Well, before we get to something that we'll be able to read from you, which is dealing a lot with children supporting parents as they age, we did get a new RBC report this morning that kind of looked at the fact that there are parents that are still supporting their children who are starting to, mm, I wouldn't call it old, but certainly age gets somewhere between, say, 18 to 35, even 30 to 35, and they're still dropping money into the kids' accounts and pockets. This is something that is happening? Yes, you're right. I mean, the new RBC report that came out found that I think it was 96% of parents with kids between the ages of 18 to 35 say that they've given their kids some money in some capacity into their adulthood. So that includes, you know, paying for their education, giving them money for rent, and even covering their cell phone bill. So the, the amount that they subsidize varies, but a huge portion of Canadian parents are doing that. And what's also interesting to me is that even when their children get a bit older, so they hit that 30 to 35-year-old mark, the parents are still supporting them. I think RBC found that 48% of parents were offering some financial support to their 30-year-olds, which is, you know, they're adults at that point, really. Yeah, and that's like half. Yes, it's a lot of money, I'm sure. Okay, well then let's take a look at kind of where you are headed with this, because if we picture parents who are, for just a a nice round number, let's say somewhere between, you know, 45 and 65, that means Mm -hmm. they could be supporting their children to some extent, even paying the cell phone bill of somebody who's in their early 30s, and then when they look above them, they have their parents who all of a sudden are needing care. What are you finding out in that way? So it's really interesting. So what I'm writing about, or what I have written about, I should say, is that we're seeing more and more adult children supporting their parents. So this means primarily, you know, ranging from 30s to 60s. They're in the opposite direction, and they're offering monetary support to their parents. So there's a couple reasons why this is happening, and one of them is that we're seeing a trend in Canada in gray divorces. So adults, you know, 55 plus getting divorced later in life. And this is having a huge financial strain on them, you know, on for 30 to 40 years. And then all of a sudden you have to divide your assets just around the point of retirement. You're not having as much money coming in as you were when you were working in your 30s. So in these situations, these parents are actually relying on their children um, for financial support. Um, another reason why we're seeing more adult children supporting their parents is that the cost of care when they get older is just so high. I mean, in Canada, if you're as someone who needs to go into a retirement home, you could be easily, you know, paying $5,000 a month if you're living in Toronto. So people don't necessarily have enough money in their retirement savings funds to cover all the costs. So they're now turning to their kids who might have their own kids and they're saying, hey, I need some help. We're talking with Laura Hensley, national online journalist with globalnews.ca. And Laura is taking a look at taking care of absolutely everybody, it seems. We need to maybe group everybody back into the old-fashioned one-family home where three generations live together. Have you heard any kind of solution ideas in any of this? Well, I spoke 
to um, a money expert, Judith Kane, and she has some great advice in terms of, you know, having these conversations. So although there might not be one solution to, you know, parents' money woes, she did say that being really honest and open is important. So if you're an aging adult, say you're 60, you need to be honest about how much money you have ready for retirement. If you're in a situation where you're probably going to need to ask your kids in a few years for their support, you got to tell them because the worst situation is all of a sudden, you know, you're needing to ask someone or someone's needing to give you money and they just don't have it. So she really advised being honest and open with your family about money as soon as you can. Another thing she suggested, if you are an adult child who is now supporting their parents, you should talk to your siblings if you have them about it. So you should be really clear about who's responsible for what. You know, maybe, you know, sibling one takes mom to the doctor and sibling two makes sure that, you know, they have enough money put aside. So helping out and pitching in in whatever capacity you can is really important. But it all starts with being honest and having conversations. Hey. Great piece of advice. Laura, thank you so much for this. We will look for this on globalnews.ca for more information. Have yourself a great afternoon. Thanks, you too. Laura Hensley, national online journalist with Global News, and I have tweeted out the story right now so that you can read what Laura has written if you find yourself more in the generation of either having to support parents or perhaps even needing the support from your kids. And all of this boils down to a couple of things. One, life is darned expensive. That's number one in all of this. Life is darned expensive. And, you know, do we chalk it up to capitalism and say, well, when you have every single thing from the celery producers to the people who create shoes to the people who supply any form of entertainment or housing or whatever it is, everybody is trying to get every last cent out of it, how much can I sell this for? Supply and demand takes over and prices settle at where the market will bear. And if the market says, yeah, I'll I'll pay two and a half dollars for celery, no problem. You know, I I burn calories when I eat it. What great stuff. And it's so tasty with that cheese whiz. I can't eat that. I I can't do cheese whiz. But some people... Don't mind it. But the problem is, everything is that expensive. And sometimes it's not that you don't plan. Sometimes it's that you can't plan or you can't plan enough. If you sit down with a financial planner, you know what one of the first things they'll say to you is, okay, well, we're going to put together this idea and this plan. And then what we're going to do is try and guess how much everything is going to be in the future. Because typically, if you start early enough, and you sit down with a financial planner, they will say, hey, you want to see what we can get you per year? And you look at it and you go, let's do that. And then they say to you, okay, but you've got to realize that the cost of living is going to be a lot different. Because if we rewind time 40 years, you could have easily said to somebody, hey, you know what we can get you per year? $8,000 in retirement. $8,000 a year. Whew. Right on. (laughs) We'll be taking five trips and I'm going to buy a new car. Because 40 years ago, that's what you would have said. Now it's a little bit different. And, you know, I'm I'm throwing a number around. Maybe I have to bump it up to 18,000. What if I said 18,000? Would that be big enough? But that's just the whole thing. Now that money does not go as far as it used to. So 
again, if you missed it off the start, this comes from an RBC Family Finances poll that RBC puts out each and every year. And they surveyed people who were dealing with their adult children. And then Laura kind of took it a step further and said, okay, well, what's happening now with people and their own parents? And kind of painted a nice picture for us of the sandwich generation. But people between the ages of 18 to 35, here are the big numbers in this. 18 to 35 are helping out their adult children to the tune of 96%. For sure. 96%. And when you kind of cut it down to a total of, uh, or when you cut it down to 30 to 35-year-olds, 48% are still subsidizing them in some way. Could be a little bit for rent, could be still paying their cell phone bill, who knows? But they're having to do that to help out their kids, almost half. 519-643-2222. John, how are you doing? Thank you, how are you today? Not bad. I got one heck of a cold, just got back from Mexico, and now I'm sicker than a dog, so... Is it the air conditioning? I always hear that the air conditioning can give you colds you when you go what? away. I don't know. I thought I was going to come back really energized, right back, get to work, and everyone I worked with was sick when I got back, so within 24 hours I was sick. So All what right, do let's you blame do? them. It can't yeah, be a trip to Mexico. Them. I'm blaming them. Hey, listen, you know, I was thinking about this. I, I'm 60, so I, I grew up in a generation where, you know, it was really rare to have... What my myself and my family, or any of my friends, the mother working. It was the husband, the father worked, the one paycheck, you know, paid for a house, paid for the kids to be in sports, a vacation in the summertime, what have you. You can't do that anymore. So that being said, like you had said, everything comes down to money. But now, so you've got the mom and the dad working, and they're waiting longer to have kids now because they've got to get their, their act together financially, hopefully get a house. So now they're having kids... Like in my case, I, I had my son when I was 38, 39 years old, but people now 31, 32, 33. That's, so, that's a regular occurrence right it's there. It's a regular occurrence. So you got to think about this. Well, by the, uh, you know, and you know you've got kids. The sports, all that sort of stuff costs a whole lot of money. So now bringing that into parents that are older, when they're in their prime years of making good money, they're spending a lot of money too because they've got these kids growing up. Then comes university. And as you know, that's friggin' expensive. I've got a kid now in third year, and it's really expensive. I'm 60 years old with a 21-year-old kid. So that's using a whole lot of money there too. So next thing you know, he's out looking for a job, 25, 26, when he gets finished his uh, graduate studies and that. He's starting off. You know, I think most parents think, well, you know... <laughs> Uh, he didn't ask to be here. If I can't afford it, I'm going to be throwing money at him or her. Or thank God I only have one. But uh, now all of a sudden you're starting to think, I've got this kid that's just getting off on his own, and I've got to start thinking about retirement too. What's yeah. going on here? So this sounds a little hokey here, but I'm glad I come from a European background because, you know, when my parents got old, not only myself, my son helped look after them when he could, and he did a heck of a lot. I came from that type of family, Ukrainian background, where you don't put your parents in nursing homes. You do as much as you can, and basically until they die. And there's an old, uh, in Ukrainian, it won't mean anything to you, but it's basically, uh, we were brought up like uh, your parents wipe your butt, and one day you may be wiping your parents' butt someday, too. (laughs) But you know what? That's something that I think needs to become more of a philosophy if we are to manage all of this stuff going forward. Because like you say, by the time you are getting your kids to be self-sufficient, it is almost retirement time bang on for everybody. So, no, John, you make some great points. Thanks for the call. Take care of that cold. Yeah. (laughs) Take care. We are going to take a break, and we'll let you know what else is still to come. Colm Fior, Canadian actor, going to be joining us in about 15 minutes. This is Global News Radio. 980 CFPL. 
Okay, still to come on London Live, Comfior, Canadian actor. This guy has 140 screen and TV credits. You've probably seen him at Stratford. He has performed in so many different things, including King Lear. Did a phenomenal job of that. And today, it's been unveiled that... He's one of the winners of the Governor General Performing Arts Award. Colm Fior will join us. Lisa Wright is going to be on the show. The end of Heart Month, and we haven't talked about congenital heart disease. We're going to do that. Realize how common it is? I didn't. And Zach Medeiros, kicker and punter with the Toronto Argos. We'll talk some CFL free agency. Up next, Jacqueline LaBelle with news. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. In just a few minutes on London Live, we are going to be joined by Colm Fior. You have seen him in so many different things. Bone Cop, Bad Cop, he is in that series. That's the one that, in a way, brought his name to light. He is a tremendous actor and has starred in everything from movies to TV to Shakespeare in Stratford. And he is going to join us but first, I want to get to a little bit more reaction on paying for your kids and paying for your parents at the same time. Al says, I still help support my kids. My daughter is 26, living in Toronto, just finished her last year of school. And there's the other part, too. School is not necessarily two years. School is not finish grade 12 and go. So, 26, living in Toronto, just finishing her last year of school? Yeah. Al says, I still pay her cell phone and car insurance and whatever else they need. Call me old school, but that's part of being a parent. I'm Italian background, was brought up the same way. I've always believed if you're going to have kids, you give them the best opportunity you can. Same with my parents. Help them with day-to-day -day activities. They supported me when I was young. I support them as they get older. I turned out fine. So will my kids. That's not to say there isn't tough love sometimes. Just went through it with my son in school. Al, that's great. I mean, you could, you could continue what you were writing there and turn it into a how-to parenting book. I really believe that. If you're going to have kids in this world, they've got to be number one. It's not... Well, you know, they'll spend a couple days or a couple hours in front of the TV so I can have my me time. That's not parenting. That's not what a parent needs to do. So if you're going to have kids, be serious about it. I still say you should have to pass a test to have a kid, but nobody's picked up on that. Nobody seems to be in favor of that. Uh, let's go to the phones. 519-643-2222. Bob, how are you doing? Hey, pretty good, Mike. How are you? Good. Yeah, I, I believe, uh, of course, I uh, totally believe in uh, helping your kids as much as you can. But I don't, uh, you know, you can't, as a parent, and in some situations it's like this, right, where parents really can't afford to send their kids, so the kids are going to have to pick up some of the slack. Now, I know personally myself, and perhaps a lot of your other listeners, um, you know, that was helped to a certain degree, but if you're when going to college, university, you have to hold a job, and, and you have to save money during the summer to contribute to that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if you have one one child, perhaps it's a lot easier. If you have four or five, two or three, even today, right, it's pretty expensive. So uh, I think you teach that lesson to, to your siblings uh, or to your, your children when they're young that, uh, you know, nothing is for free. And when you have to pull the socks up and if you want something in life, you might have to, uh, you know, get your hands dirty and work a little to, to get there. 
Um, now, having said all that, what I do see today, and even within my own family with nieces and nephews, uh, and not with, with all young people today, but I do notice a lot of young people, when, when they get started in their life, uh, when, say, they're, they're done their school, oh, I'm mean, just, uh, just a backtrack, like there's student loans, too. And I mean, I know I've got, I had student loans and you have to pay those back. So you have to work and everything. But, uh, you know, so a lot of these young people today, I, I see when they get out and they start a family or get married, they seem to want it all at once. Like I've seen 28 years olds with, with, uh, with uh, school debt uh, and then start families buying $500,000 houses and, and having two new vehicles in the garage. And that's okay for a short period of time. And then all of a sudden it starts going south, and then the stress really starts to, uh, you know, mount. And, and sometimes some of these people get a hard lesson in life where they have to sell and downsize. But I don't understand why it doesn't seem to be a lot of that going in succession. You buy your first modest house, right? Maybe you fix it up a little bit. And then you graduate as you get older and get your dream house when maybe you're in your 50s or something, right? Mm-hmm. So I, Everything's I just, pushed. Yeah, I just see a lot of that happening where it's just the spending of money you don't have and not realizing the repercussions if, if things do get a little tense. Like if, once, if one of the people, one of the spouse, uh, family members loses a job. Yeah, you know what you bring up? You do bring up a good point in that we, we're almost conditioned to think, yeah, everybody else has that, so I should have that. How am I going to get it? Credit or a loan, and then, yeah, things can get all spirally on us. Bob, thanks for the call. All right, Mike Taker. Have a great day. We'll take a break. We'll leave that conversation there, but, yeah, it's, it's one, and we've had a few people now point to a European background saying, well, here's how it is done. And we're heading toward that. You know, in the UK, you don't have a lot of new building going on. And you do have a lot of generations under the same roof. It's just the way it works. And we may be heading there ourselves in in much the same way because of what we're seeing in terms of cost of living. Next up, Colm Fior, Canadian actor on London Live. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. We get an opportunity to spend some time right now with Colm Fior, who earlier today was named one of 2019's Governor General's Performing Arts Awards recipients. And if you look back at his career, he has more than 140 film and TV credits to his name. That means basically name a show. He's at least made an appearance on it. Sometimes he's had a role in it. Sometimes he has starred in it. And he is someone who you also have been able to see over and over again in performances at the Stratford Shakespeare Festival in very nearby Stratford. Please welcome Colm Fior to 980 CFBL. And Colm, welcome to London Live. Thank you so much. And congratulations. Thanks. When you look at an award, there are so many awards in the entertainment industry, but when you when you get that call and it's not because an audition went really well and a job is coming, but it's because somebody's recognizing just what you have done. What is that like? Well, to be honest, I'd hosted the Governor General's uh, Performing Arts Awards uh, Gala a bunch of times. So when somebody called from there, I thought, oh, they just want me to host this. I, I actually just didn't answer the phone. And then there was a message, called me back, and I went, 
all right, what do you want? <laughs> so they said, well, actually, we were, we were going to give you one. Oh, oh, right, awkward, sorry. Well, well, that's great. I don't suppose I could host as well, could I? <laughs> they said, no, no, you just have to relax, get honored, and that's it. I said, well, you know, it'd be so much more effective and cost-effective for me to host, too, but okay. That's great. So well, it was, I mean, listen, it was a surprise, and, uh, and uh, obviously my first reaction was uh, was one of shock. But, uh, you know, I, I've gotten over that. Now, I, now I'm delighted and as pleased as one could be. If we look at your resume, it is phenomenal to see all the different things you have done, and, and it almost makes you wonder, wow, I mean, these are all of the things that actually got to a production stage. I can't even imagine the things that an actor has to audition for, gets, and then something happens and it, it doesn't actually get to that finished product. Right. Uh, It's terrible business, there's no question, and it's it's generally speaking pretty wretched and miserable, and there's not nearly enough money in it. uh, Some of the most dear things to me have blown up in my face. But, you know, you soldier on and try and uh, get to the next thing and think, well, you know what, there was nobody guaranteed us anything at the beginning of this, let's just one step at a time. The other issue is that you look back and it looks like you had a plan, but there never was one. I just say yes a lot. (laughs) <laughs> now, maybe somebody needs the, the perspective of, of that, in that you say there, there's not enough money in the industry because immediately you look and you think, well, you know, you're an actor, you've done movies, you've done TV, you've done stage, you know, that's, that's the, the pinnacle. That, that has to be filled with, with treasures and riches and all sorts of things. Oh, yeah, my treasures and riches, three wretched, ungrateful children at university. Um, <laughs> So there will be no retiring uh, because, you know, they've all gone through, they're all doing well, but, you know, we still have real-life normal responsibilities in putting food on the table and a roof over their heads. And so, you know, and none of these things pay what they think, what anybody thinks they pay. I mean, Tom Hanks is probably rich, I'm guessing. Uh, Julia Roberts. Uh, I know that Clooney's done very well with tequila, but uh, as for the rest of us, it's a job. You know, you, you cobble together a career, and as I say, it looks like you had a plan, but no, you're just going from A to B to C and hoping that they connect and that, you know, one thing will lead to another, and they very rarely do. Every time I've done something, I'm like, yep, this is going to take off. This is going to be shit bombed. And you think, okay, I'm going to go to New York. I'm going to do a play on Broadway. It'll be great, and it's going to give me nothing. Okay, well, that was fun. And, you know, you, you sacrifice your family. You sacrifice some of your life and, you know, hope that everybody understands and forgives you. Uh, and, you know, in the end, you look back and go, what was all that about? I don't know. We're talking with Colm Fior, who has had a tremendous career and continues to have a tremendous career and is now a recipient of a 2019 Governor General's Performing Arts Award. That has been announced as of today. Do you remember the first call that you got where you went, I got this? I, I got it? I got, and, and maybe jumped up in the air a little bit? Well, my goodness, I suppose... Yes. Years and years ago, when I first started at Stratford, um, I, I'd gone to the audition and it had gone terribly badly. And Don Hirsch, who was the artistic director at the time, stopped me every time I opened my mouth to be or no, not to be, no, stop, stop, stop. And then weeks later, so I always did what I always do after auditions, which are miserable things uh, and filled with rejection. I go out and I buy myself a coffee or a Coke and a donut. 
and think, well, you know, it hasn't been a completely wasted day. And a, a couple of weeks later, uh, Hirsch actually phoned and said, so we're going to give you a job, and it's going to be like this. And I went, really? I damn near dropped the phone. And uh, that was the beginning. And since then, it's been you know, a wonderful roller coaster ride of ups and downs and challenges. But on balance, I, I guess today, I'd have to say it looks like it's gone pretty well. But, you know, if, if you could tell the stories, and <laughs> we're just horrible. Humiliations galore. So, so today sort of makes up for that. Does the coffee or the donut change or the Coke that you buy? Does it get bigger with certain things, smaller with other things? No, I think it's, it really is the action of taking yourself away from whatever that, you know, encounter was and saying, look, you're okay. You're fine. Just, just go to get yourself a nice cappuccino. Sit quietly and reflect and be grateful. And so it's, it's about gratitude, really. And just say, look, I get to do something I really like. Maybe not always the way I want to do it. Maybe not always, you know, in the best of circumstances. It's just, you know, as the living goes, it's pretty good. And so I'm working right now on being grateful. We're talking with Colm Fior on London Live, recipient of a 2019 Governor General's Performing Arts Award. And we mentioned the resume. There are more than 140 film and TV credits. The stage, Stratford. Tell us what it's like opening night to be preparing for a play at Stratford. Well, you know, we, we take months to get them ready. And usually uh, I take the year before to get ready and brace my in Los Angeles thing. I'm going to now, <laughs> and there's usually a little reluctance there. I said, no, no, it's art. It's really good for me. And, you know, last time I was here, I did King Lear, and Anthony Cimolino, the artistic director, was directing, and we started a year and a half before the you know first day of rehearsal together, talking, working, thinking, bouncing ideas, going, is this a bad idea? Is it a good idea? Are we out of our minds? And then we start rehearsal somewhere around the first of February, and go like crazy, trying to, you know, throw ourselves in and give absolutely everything we've learned up until this minute. And then finally you get to opening night, and you think, I, you, you give it all away. And it's, it's, it's really, it's a very generous exercise and risk in saying, look, I, I hope you like it. If you don't, I still have to do it a hundred times. So, you know, don't tell me you don't like it until Halloween when we stop. But it's an extraordinary thing, particularly the festival theater. It, it's such a, an intimate space, but holds so many people. You think about 800 and, 1,850 people in, a, in, in one room listening to you. You better have something to say. <laughs> That's well put. Now, in terms of, of creative license with something like Shakespeare, how much do you let yourself have? Well, Shakespeare's your guide always, right? So he'll tell you what he needs, and all you have to really be is sensitive to, you know, being the human being that you are, open to all of his suggestions. And obviously with the director, you know, he's got an idea of how he wants it to look, etc. But Shakespeare kind of tells you very clearly what he wants. And the success or failure of the exercise is how willing you are to go along with that, to give over to that. Because, you know, a lot of it's hard. The, the, the big plays, the tragedies which teach you the most about being a human being uh, are difficult because, of course, there's always people in crisis. 
And at the end, everybody dies. So, you know, you've got to take these challenges seriously. Um, you know, when I did Lear, it damn near killed me. I used to joke about Christopher Plummer, who played it before and then was going off to New York to do, but I'm only going to do five a week. I thought, what a, what a wuss. I could barely do four. I could barely do four. And I finally saw Chris recently at some event where they were doing a documentary about him, and fabulous he was, too. Uh, And I just said, I get it now. I'm so sorry. I'm not worthy. Um, This stuff is hard. (laughs) What is it that that is so draining? What is it that is so tough? Well, if you do the job properly, you are putting yourself in these extraordinary, exceptional circumstances every time you do it, be it 2 o'clock in the afternoon or 8 o'clock at night. And and sometimes, you know, we'd, of course, do it twice a day because we'd be rehearsing and run it and then run it again. If you're doing it properly, you're giving yourself over to these you know, roller coasters of emotion and, and uh, action and just trying to survive it. But at the same time, you know, you keep in mind what's going on. There's no set to speak of on the festival stage. So it's just you and the words. And you're standing there alone, essentially, with your colleagues saying, look, we got some words, we're going to bounce them off each other and hope that these nearly 2,000 people have a very moving experience. Well, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to speak fast and clearly. We're going to fight hard. We're going to love hard. We're going to hit hard. And it's that kind of athletic engagement that is exhausting physically, but emotionally and, and psychologically it's draining because you're usually saying, Horrible things to people. Well, I mean, Lear, you know, you're ripping your kids apart. You're getting, you're getting thrown out into the, into the wilds of the storms and you're half naked and cold and miserable. And then you lose your mind and then your kids die. And, you know, and then you die. It's, uh, it's a lot to go through. <laughs> In an afternoon. <laughs> yeah, when you when you put it that way. Confiore joining us. Uh, 2019 Governor General's Performing Arts Award recipient. Before we let you go, and I'd love to talk for a long, long time, but uh, time is our enemy right now. But in, in looking at something like Bon Cop, Bad Cop, that's become a Canadian movie that when someone says name a Canadian movie, sometimes that's the one that, that rolls right off their tongue right away. In making that, did you realize what you had? No, but I tell you, we had the greatest time. We had so much fun doing it each and every day. It was a riot. And we knew that it would, it would appeal to somebody. And certainly any Canadian who's been stuck in a French class or a Francophone stuck in an English class going, God, this is such a nightmare. Why am I doing this? Oh, I wanted to work for Air Canada or the government. Right, I remember now. And, you know, we've all been through this, and we get it. And it's a particularly Canadian experience. And I can tell if I'm talking to a Canadian or American when I describe the opening scene where you've got a body on the, you know, welcome to Quebec, you're now leaving Ontario sign, and these two cops get and they rip the body apart. Canadians laugh. Everybody else goes, oh, oh, that's gross. Canadians always laugh. And so, you know, I've Patrick decided he'd make a second one. We've done that. I think he'll make a third. I hope he does anyway, because it, it, has, it has stood the test. And, it, and, you know, it made some people some money. And so, you know, we live in hope, and I carry on. Now I want you to watch The Umbrella Academy on Netflix. I'm the bad dad on that. So, you know, we keep moving forward. Very nice. So that is one thing we can look for. You Anything else that we should keep our eyes open for? Oh, well, Greta, the scary movie Greta with Isabelle Huppert opens, uh, I think, tomorrow. Prodigy with Taylor Schilling, scary movie opened a couple of weeks ago. And The Umbrella Academy is 10 episodes on Netflix right now.
And the resume continues to grow. Well, Colm, it is incredibly impressive. Please keep adding to it. Congratulations once again, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for your interest, Mike. Take care. Take care. Canadian actor Colm Fior, 2019 Governor General's Performing Arts Award winner and very well-deserved. I didn't thought of that. You know, you always think of acting as fun, and you think just putting on a certain number of performances each week, yeah, and you're completely wiped, completely drained. But as Colm says, he has made this a job. And that's what you have to do sometimes. Hey, sometimes you'll hit on a show and then all of a sudden you're negotiating $600,000 an episode. That's not the norm. The norm is finding a way to make yourself relevant, finding a way to be versatile enough that you can appear and you can continue to work. And that's what he's done. And that is as impressive as what his resume holds on it. Coming up on London Live, it's the end of Heart Month. When you hear the words congenital heart disease, you know what that is? Ah, yeah, it's something you get when you're older. No, it isn't. Congenital heart disease. Do you know what that is? We're going to talk about what it is, who it affects, and why maybe we need to be paying a little bit more attention to it than we are. Plus, we'll talk with Zach Medeiros, kicker and punter with the Toronto Argonauts. We had another retirement today in the CFL. Travis Lule calling it a career, but we've seen an awful lot of movement. And we'll recap things as we get closer, believe it or not. And this is one of those, hey, here's a sign that spring is coming, summer, please. The CFL season isn't that far away. Won't feature Johnny Manziel this year. This is Global News Radio, 980 CFPL. And this is the official end of February. You know what tomorrow is, right? March. Weather isn't cooperating completely yet, but don't worry about that. We heard earlier this week on 980 CFPL News that there could be kind of an abrupt turn. I don't know when it's coming, because in the long-range forecast, Tuesday still says minus 11. Don't look at that. Maybe it'll change before then. We've got an abrupt turn coming. But tomorrow is definitely March. And with the beginning of March, we have the end of Heart Month. And we've taken some time this month to learn about different things. Went over a lot of statistics at the beginning of the month. We have talked to some healthcare professionals. We have an opportunity right now to learn about congenital heart disease, which might be the most misunderstood part of heart disease. And joining us is someone who had this come into their life because they started to have a family. Lisa Wright is with us, and Lisa just happens to be the chair of what is an organization that spends an awful lot of time helping people, not just with congenital heart disease in London, but in London and Middlesex. You may know it as Hearts of London, Middlesex. Lisa, why don't we begin with actual congenital heart disease? What does it actually mean? Well, actually, being congenital heart disease means they were actually born with a defect to their heart. So some sort of abnormality um, in the way the heart was formed in utero. So um, it's actually the most common birth defect. It affects one in 100 births. And um, so, yes, any, any one of the 100 births that happen, uh, you know, daily at the hospital, um, unfortunately could result in their child having um, a heart defect 
which leads into congenital heart disease for that child for the rest of their life. Okay, so we're talking about how many different issues then? This must be an umbrella. Uh, Yes, actually, there's 35 named actual defects, and there's a multitude of others. Um, The heart, as you know, is such a large organ in our body that does so much to keep us alive, obviously, and keep us functioning. And there's so many parts to the the heart that I I had to learn in a crash course when our daughter was born. Um, And so there's just so many parts of that that could... um, have a defect once born that can affect the way the heart is developed. We're talking with Lisa Wright on London Live, Chair of Hearts of London and Middlesex, as we come to the end of February and the end of Heart Month. Lisa, when your daughter was born, how do you even determine that there is an issue with her heart? Well, we were very lucky in the fact that the nurse that was checking her over right after she was born detected a small heart murmur. Um, and then, you know, there's, there's many times that a baby is born with a small heart murmur, and it can mean um, absolutely nothing. But they'll always investigate it. And with this uh, investigation on our daughter, it turned out to be that um, her pulmonary valve um, was becoming, becoming to close, um, in which case uh, she would get no oxygen to the rest of her body. So it was quite an emergency type of situation after that was determined. Okay. And then what happens? So um, she was then needed to be airlifted to Toronto where they could do some intervention. Um, Her pulmonary valve needed to be forced open, um, and in which case uh, more abnormalities within her heart uh, came to light. And so we spent uh, two months in Toronto um, learning about the heart and learning about all the different defects that can actually happen. But at the same time, getting amazing medical care uh, within our medical system um, and followed in London now, and uh, she's a beautiful 13-year-old that's gone through too much that a 13-year-old should, um, but at the same time has, uh, has just been amazing, and we've just had amazing medical care for her. This was your first child. What is that like as a parent? Um, it's, it's overwhelming. <laughs> so when, when people think about, obviously, the times when they have their first child, I mean, it's very new, everything's new. So this was... Uh, Definitely not only a crash course in parenting, but a crash course in, uh, in, in our body system, in our heart, and uh, having to take care of a child with, with heart issues. Is this something that is still being addressed? Will, will this be something that is still an issue for your daughter throughout the rest of her life? Yes, and so for our daughter and for all children that have been born with a heart defect, it is a lifelong care. And it is uh, something that we really are striving to put out um, so that people realize um, surgeries happen for our children. They get repairs, but they are never fixed. So their hearts are repaired to allow the functioning to happen, but it's not functioning as a normal heart should. So multitude of things can happen as that child is developing, as well as um, when the abnormalities are determined, a lot of times these children lose oxygen because of that. And so that can affect their, their learning capabilities. So there's a lot of learning disabilities. There's some physical activity delays. Um, so there's a lot of different things that they're now addressing because of the fact that medical intervention has allowed these children to survive. But now they're starting to look at the fact that how do we help these children not just survive, but live a healthy, normal, happy life growing up into adulthood.
Lisa Wright joining us, chair of Hearts of London and Middlesex, as we talk about congenital heart disease, and Hearts of London is part of the Canadian Congenital Heart Alliance. If you're to break down statistics, and we look at how common this is, Lisa, you spelled it out right from the start, one in 100 children is born with some sort of heart defect that then comes under the umbrella of congenital heart disease. When we compare the statistics of congenital heart disease to, you name it, name me a disease, it's, it seems to be more than double anything else yeah it's it's the statistics are pretty high and it's just quite interesting because when our daughter was born i actually didn't even know anything about that when i thought of heart disease i thought of um, adults you know people over 60 that were getting acquired heart disease um you know which obviously still needs to be addressed but um you know this was something that that we really needed to learn about and it's interesting that that there isn't more information out there um, and that people don't know that it's the most common heart defect. Um, it, you know, and I think it's partly because it's a very invisible disease. Um, when these children have their, their heart repairs, as we call them, um, to you and I, they look, they look like healthy children. If you were to look at Rachel, she looks beautiful, wonderful, happy 13-year-old. Um, but there's so many of these underlying issues that these children are having to go through. They go to the, they're at the hospital visits you know, at least every, every six months, if not more. Um, they're having to do stress tests at a very young age. They're having to wear um, heart monitors and, um, you know, Holter monitors and, and getting ECGs and getting echocardiograms, um, things that, that children just shouldn't have to do. Um, and unfortunately, there just really isn't um, anything being told as far as what a cause is. There's, there is some genetic disposition that can happen throughout a family, but there's actually nothing concrete to say this is what is causing your child's heart defect. And that, I think, is very frustrating for parents. And so we really need to just keep working on research. You know, now, and I think the medical community is really starting to do that now because now they've just created, uh, you know, medical technology has just come so far and the advances have come so far. You know, um, if these children, you know, 60 years ago, only 20% of them would have survived, whereas now it's 90% of them are surviving. But with those 90%, they are now growing into young adults and into adulthood and, and need proper care for their repaired hearts that are not quite the same as everyone else's. And is the funding there for something like that? I think there's a little bit of funding. You know, there is some research going on. Um, you know, Heart and Stroke does put some money into this. Um, but again, I, I think it's just not, it's just not as known. So people just aren't as aware that this is actually happening. Um, and so unless you know someone, you know, that happens to have a heart defect, then you're not really aware that it's even there. A lot of people know of a hole in the heart. That seems to be the most common, um, terminology that people will use. However, not realizing that a hole in the heart depends on where the hole is and how large the hole is and what other defects are going along with that. So there's just so many parts and pieces to that. And, and the other part of this is cardiologists. Once these children become adults, not only do they need a regular cardiologist, they need a cardiologist that specializes in congenital heart defects because it's very different than an adult that's getting acquired heart disease later on. Well, Lisa, we really appreciate your time today. If someone is looking for more information, can we send them to the cchaforlife.org website? 
Absolutely. Okay, so cchaforlife.org. You can go slash London-Middlesex. If you want to go local, you'll see Lisa's story, her daughter Rachel's story. You'll see all kinds of great information there. Lisa, thank you so much for helping us to recognize congenital heart disease as we close out Heart Month. And thank you so much, Mike, for spreading the awareness. Lisa Wright, Chair of Hearts of London and Middlesex. Up next... We'll talk CFL free agency. Yesterday, we found out Johnny Manziel would not be back in the CFL this year. Today, we get the retirement of a quarterback. We've had all kinds of movement among quarterbacks. Zach Medeiros of the Toronto Argos will join us to weigh in on all of it. This is Global News Radio 980 CFPL. We always look for signs. Warm weather's coming. Like we said earlier this week, it's why you have Groundhog Day. Hope. You know what else? Pitchers and catchers reporting. They've done that. Grapefruit League action for the Blue Jays. That's happening. The CFL season? Yes, that is also coming. And that means warmer weather. By then, it'll be summertime. So right now, let's think summertime thoughts. And let's take a look at some of the stories from the Canadian Football League. Many, many, many of them involving quarterbacks because of a retirement, a release, and a bit of a quarterback carousel. Zach Medeiros is with the Toronto Argos, but joins us every once in a while to talk some football. And right now, we get a chance to talk with him. Zach, great to have you with us. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. We had Travis Lule announce his retirement today. He's had a distinguished career. Yesterday it was about the release of Johnny Manziel by the Montreal Alouettes, which in a way is hard on the Hamilton Tiger Cats, isn't it? It is. It really is. Um, you know, especially for what they gave up for Giant too, Montreal. I mean, you're looking at two first-round picks, uh, plus a starting Canadian uh, DN and Jamal Westerman. So, I mean, you know, it sucks that Montreal lost out on that. And, you know, obviously it didn't work out for Johnny, but they have to try and move on. And I like who they have filling for that role, though, you know, with their incubant now, which it looks like it will be uh, Antonio Pipkin. He came in for parts of last year and showed what he's capable of. And I thought he, he matched up pretty well against Johnny. So we'll see how that unfolds in Montreal. Well, we have seen a lot of changes among the quarterback position or in the quarterback position among CFL teams. And you look at Travis Lule no longer being in BC, and then we had a switch. Mike Riley goes to BC, and then you needed somebody to fill in there. So Trevor Harris goes from Ottawa to Edmonton, and then Ottawa needed. So it's gone round and round a little bit. What do you make of some of the moves that you have witnessed this offseason? Well, I'll start off with Travis Lewis since you brought that up. Uh, I never had the pleasure of playing with him, but from what I hear, great guy, great leader. I was a bit shocked that BC didn't sign him because from the sounds of it, he was one of Mike Riley's best friends. And I might have this backwards. I'm pretty sure he was in either Mike Riley was in his wedding as a groomsman or was the other way around. But either way, it just shows how close they were. And I thought for anything, maybe he'd come back for a year to spend with Mike just as that mentor since they had that close bond. Um, and then you look on to Ottawa, geez. I mean, they got gutted in free agency. I look at here, Trevor Harris, Greg Ellingson, William Powell, Spencer, Sir Vincent Rogers. I mean, geez, these guys were the catalyst in them. A big part of the reason why they got to the Great Cup last year. And I understand why, you know, guys like Ellingson, Powell, Spencer, they moved on. You know, they, they didn't right to get paid more, and rightfully so. But I thought Marcel Desjardins would have done, you know, 
done a better job, but made more of an effort, I think, to get Trevor Harris back. And obviously, I don't know all the ins and outs there, but that's that's a huge loss um, for them because I think last year was a career, like career year for them. I think he kind of put the screws, saying, "Hey, you know, I I think I I've, I've earned the right to be considered an elite QB anyway." Um, and Edmonton just took full or uh, yeah, Edmonton took full advantage of that and uh, signing him. But I also like who they picked up in Jonathan Jennings. I mean, he showed where parts of the few years that he's been BC. He's shown some great things on the field, um, as well as Dominic Davis, the backup from Ottawa last year. So I think there'll be a, a nice little competition there. When you look around the league, anything else jump out to you other than the big changes at quarterback? Um, yeah, a little bit. I mean, us. If you look at us, we uh, we almost had a crack at Bo Levi. Um, I remember uh, some people were actually texting me about. It. I didn't believe it at first, but then I noticed how much money was being involved in it. I said, geez, this might be a possibility. And ultimately, he ended up signing back in, in Calgary. Uh, but you know what? I like the depth we have. So I actually, I, I'm, I'm pretty happy because with all the money that we were offering Bo Levi, we were able to um, spend that with a, a few other key free agents. And I'll get to that in a minute. But, I mean, when you look at James Franklin and McLeod Bethel-Thompson on our roster right now, I think that that's going to shake out well for two young QBs on the up and up. I, you know, they, again, it's kind of like uh, Ottawa right now. Two young QBs, they, they both show great things on the field. And it's a very exciting season to be an Argos fan and player. A great cup champion with Ottawa now with the Toronto Argos. Zach Medeiros with us on London Live. So when you when you talk other key free agents, any other names pop to mind? Yes, and one that really sticks out to me because I remember even going back to my days in Ottawa, I hated kicking to this guy, Chris Rainey. Thank God he is finally on our team. Uh, one of the best, arguably the best, kick returner and punt returner in the league. And we finally got him. That, that week going up against him, you know, as far as film prep, practice, I was very, very limited of what, the way I, I could kick on the field. It was, everything had to pretty much be out of bounds. So my, you know, my average always suffered a little bit. So I'm just happy to have him on my side now so I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? The, the way that the, the game plan goes can be affected certainly by the guy waiting to catch the ball just inside or outside the end zone. Oh, exactly. And I mean, if I left that ball inside the field of play, you always risk that. And I knew that back in my head that there would be a good chance that he'd break through. And um, there, there's always a good chance that he's going to take it to the end zone. But I mean, you looked in other than him. You know, we have Ian Wilde, Micah Awe, um, two linebackers there, championship pedigree. Sean Lemon comes back to us, championship pedigree. Uh, we uh, signed Brendan Bridge as well, the QB uh, from Saskatchewan, and a few other pickups. To go along with that, but and same thing, we we, we bring Corey Chamberlain back along with Jock Chaplin. And listen, both these guys as a head coach, Corey Chamberlain has three great cups, and Jock Chaplin same uh, same thing, great cups. So it, it's a good mix we have between youth and experience. And uh, you know, I think this year we're gonna have a way better chance to compete and to win the East Division. Well, it won't be long before you are doing exactly that, Zach. We really appreciate your time today and talking about the big news in the CFL. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Have a great day. Thank you. That is kicker and punter with the Toronto Argos, Zach Medeiros, breaking down some of the big moves, helping us think a little bit more about when the CFL season begins. Because I know it snows in and around Eastern Final and Western Final time, right? But not so much when it gets started. See, there's hope. Next up, we'll close out London Live, and we'll let you know what is ahead for the rest of the afternoon and this evening. This is London Live on Global News Radio, 980 CFBL. Coming up, we have news with Jacqueline LaBelle. 
Matt Trevithick will be along as well. John Wilson getting us through the forecast and letting us know just maybe when that spring stuff is coming. Just maybe. We are also going to have details on news today from the Middlesex London Health Unit regarding temporary overdose prevention sites and some of the numbers that have been coming in. And really, one point is the numbers can fool you, although the main message seemed to be they're saving lives. And if that's happening, keep it up. Thanks to Matt McInnes for his help on the show today. The London Knights getting set for a three-game road trip that kicks off tomorrow. And we are getting set for news in about two minutes and ten seconds. This has been London Live on Global News Radio 980 CFPL.